Ah, the WNBA Super Drafts are coming. The Super Drafts are coming. But not this year. I've got Alex Simon and M. Adler here to talk about exactly what we're talking about, how we got here, and how the Super Drafts will impact the WNBA in the future. The Locked On Women's Basketball Podcast starts right now. Ogumba Wallet for the win! You are Locked On Women's Basketball. Your daily podcast on women's basketball. Women's basketball. I'm Jackie Powell. I'm one of your Friday hosts. Yes, it's been almost a month since I've hosted this show. I hope you all enjoyed my last episode with Kate Fagan, the well known journalist and author of Hoop Muses. But here I am, I'm back. And thank you for making Locked on Women's Basketball your first listen every day. And remember that Locked on Women's Basketball is brought to you by everyone at The Next, a place where we cover women's basketball all the time, and we tell the stories that need to be told every day. Also, the Final Four is happening today. It's happening. And I just wanted to remind you all that our staff will be live at the Final Four all weekend. I think we have eight people from the next that will be there in Dallas live on site. And look out for our usual live reported pieces, but also live podcasts right on the floor where it's all happening. And of course, those shorts. Locked on Women's Basketball is free and available on all platforms, including YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and many more. This episode is brought to you by FanDuel Sportsbook, the official sportsbook of Locked On. Make every moment more. Visit fanduel.com slash locked on today to get started. So before I open the floor to what I will think will just be a wonderful and insightful conversation with both Alex and M. Um, I want to tell y'all a quick story. So I want to flash back to January of 2020. I remember I was walking around with Ari Chambers and Lindsay Gibbs, and we were walking from the parking lot to go cover USA basketball training camp that was taking place in Hartford, Connecticut. Pre-pandemic, right? It is January 2020. And I said to them, I said, so what is the percent chance that Satu Sabali comes out early for the draft? So Satu was a junior at that time. And I remember they both replied, they're like, oh my gosh, it's a 90% chance, 95% chance. So this was January of 2020. Let's remember what didn't exist. So Alex and M, wh- why does this sound so wild? Why do I even bring up this story to begin with? 
Well, for one, uh, in the three years since, not just a pandemic has happened, but also both the WNBA and college sports have seen levels of upheaval that are really kind of startling to see. Uh, On the college side, for one, the COVID pandemic allowed for an extra year of eligibility to be applied to anybody who played in the 2020-2021 season. So the current group of juniors, that would be the Caitlin Clark, Cameron Brink class, and the current group of seniors that has led been led by Aaliyah Boston, Haley Jones is a star from those class, they were on campus there. So anybody that was you know a freshman and sophomore during 2020-2021 has an extra year of eligibility to play with. On top of that, name, image, and likeness has become a thing that the NCAA has ended its rules banning and allowed athletes to seek out financially. On top of that, right after that January discussion you had, a new WNBA CBA came in and has been locked in for the better part now of, from that point forward, six to eight years. We don't know exactly if somebody's going to opt out at the opt out, which would end the CBA in 2025 or take it through to 2027. But a lot has changed on both ends that has created kind of a delayed impact that we're now seeing because all of a sudden what we thought, Jackie, with your story, where you talk about a player who was pretty much guaranteed to be leaving early to go pro as fast as possible. And we've seen what dozens of potential, even potential pros, not guaranteed draft picks, but even fringe players decide to stick around in college for another year. Yeah. I mean, when we think about who is returning, the first thing that came to mind when the NCAA announced that they would be applying this extra year of eligibility, not only to spring athletes who had their sports canceled, um, but to winter athletes who competed in the regular seasons, but were robbed of an NCAA postseason. When that was granted to them, we thought almost immediately, okay, what's going to happen is we're going to have a lot more role players who are going to stay in college players at the fringe of the WNBA level. And yeah, we're seeing a lot of that. But right now what we're getting into is we're seeing a lot of players who are, you know, solid mid first round picks uh, in women's basketball. We're seeing a lot of, I don't want to say a lot, but we're seeing a fair number of these kind of players return to school. And we're seeing some really highly ranked players in the upcoming classes, uh, possibly deciding to stay in school or at least strongly considering the prospect of that. You think of Aaliyah Boston, Caitlin Clark, Paige Beckers. These are all players who I can say that that it's heard solidly that these are players who have given strong thought to staying. You know, they are at very different ends of, of the spectrum as to like, how likely it actually is, but it's a consideration now for even players who are gar- basically guaranteed spots in the W. Which is sort of wild because the Indiana Fever are sort of, you know, sitting on the edge of their seats here. You, you have to think that the Fever, a lot of their plan revolves around being able to draft Aaliyah. I mean, you'd think that. They'd also, I guess, have a contingency plan. You know, oh, if Aaliyah doesn't come out, what do we do? Um, But that was sort of unthinkable three years ago. So what we just discussed in the first, I don't know, seven, eight minutes of this podcast 
was the how for how what we're going to see coming soon, what I've called a super draft, um, why that's about to happen. So we're going to continue to discuss that later in the show. We're going to talk about how super drafts impact the WNBA. And then we're going to look at potential solutions to figuring out some of these issues that a potential super draft will, will provide uh, to professional women's basketball in the United States. So um, the, the thing that I want to get to right before we take a short break is I actually asked um, Lexi Hull and Alyssa Smith during their final Athletes Unlimited presser what they thought about some of this. Obviously, they have teammates or, well, Lexi Hull had a former teammate and had a jump who decided to stay an extra year. And Melissa Smith, I think her only teammate, only two teammates from Baylor, they both declared in Caitlin Bickle and Asbury. I don't think she was never teammates with Blackwell who decided to stay. But anyway, I asked them about this. And so what was so fascinating about what Lexi Hull said is she said, yeah, you know, there, there are a lot of positives to staying. And she said, but the W isn't going anywhere. So that'll be there in a year. And I was like, hmm, that's a really interesting way to put it. The W is not going anywhere. And that's, and that's got some dramatic irony to it because the W isn't going anywhere and that, that the league isn't going to fold anytime soon. The W isn't, the W also isn't going anywhere and that it's, it doesn't have a path. It doesn't, it doesn't know where it's going at the moment besides quote unquote expansion at quote unquote some point in the future. So when we think about these fringe prospects, prospects, like we mentioned before, then they don't have a place in a 12 team league in the way that they might in a 14, 16 team league or a 12 or 14 team league where the rosters are expanded beyond effectively an 11 player cap. This not only means that um, they sort of delay their decisions and don't come into the W, what it also means is that it what you're saying about a super draft, it actually would help the W's expansion efforts in that it sets up a large influx of talent at a very specific time when teams are, if you were to expand at that exact same point in time, teams would be starting their rosters anew and suddenly have a lot of room open for high upside plays. Whether the W actually plans to do that, I'm not holding my breath. Well, we're, we're going to, you have opened up Pandora's box, M. But before we continue to open up Pandora's box, I do want to, again, remind you all of what day today is. I mean, the final four is tonight. And Iowa takes on South Carolina. It's Caitlin versus Aaliyah. And it's Kim Moe. And the Bayou Barbie Angel Reese, they take on Kenny Brooks and the mighty Georgia Amor and her Virginia Tech. There is no better place to get in all of that action and drama than FanDuel, America's number one sports book. Because right now, FanDuel is giving new customers a no-sweat first bet 
up to $1,000. That's up to $1,000 back in bonus bets if your first bet doesn't win. Just go to fanduel.com slash locked on and sign up today to claim your no sweat first bet. Then you can wager on everything from the money line to the point spreads to which team will be cutting down the net. All on an app that's safe, secure, and super easy to use. So don't miss your shot at a no sweat first bet up to $1,000 when you join FanDuel today. Just go to fanduel.com slash locked on to sign up. Make every moment more with FanDuel and enjoy the final four. All right, let's get back to our program. So M was just discussing, discussing this idea of the impact of the super draft on the WNBA. I think before we dive into that more, what I want to touch on exactly, and I think what I want to make sure our listeners understand, is what exactly is this super draft that we're talking about? Who are the potential players involved? So Alex, do you want to sort of take us through why we've given this this moniker to 2024 and potentially 2025 as well? Well, the theory behind calling it a super draft is that effectively there's going to be a point, whether it's 2024 directly or if enough. So effectively you have three high school classes of prospects who have now matriculated through their college eligibility that for two of them specifically that we are now in, they have a little bit of fluidity between do they go pro right now? If you're in the, if you were a sophomore in 2020, 2021, You can go pro right now when your true senior year is up. But if you use that COVID year and stay, that's that entire class, whoever is staying, of which M could rattle off a list of at least a dozen players who have made that choice already a lot better than I could. All of those players then all of a sudden kick into the 2024 draft, where the freshmen from 2020, 2021, the Beckers, Brink, Clark group, could go pro if they so chose, or they could then stay that extra year. They're the last class that truly has that extra year and can make the choice actively to stay. The WNBA's rules specify a player has to be either 22 by the start of the calendar year of the next season, or they have to have stayed in college for a minimum of four years or excuse me, be four years removed from their uh, high school graduation. There's some very tricky things that even allow players to leave early, like the example that you gave of Satu earlier. But what we're seeing right now, and really it's kind of, it's a squeeze on both ends for the specific people, is that fiscally right now, it's not actually all that much more beneficial for a lot of these players at big programs to go pro into a very salary rigid situation in the WNBA, especially if for some of them, you can make some name, image, and likeness money that's rather significant. And, you know, the fact that we have seen Aaliyah Boston kind of be a little vague about things. Um, it seems like Don Staley might be pushing her to go now, but Aaliyah is at least interested in the discussion. We've seen Caitlin Clark and Paige Beckers both kind of hint at the thought of staying in college for a fifth year, even if they're only in their third year right now. It's kind of those points where even at the super top of the college game, this WNBA pay structure is limiting things to a point that it's causing this to happen. And the super draft is basically when you get 
two classes worth of talent into one draft class. And M, to kind of go off your point, if that happens in 2024, I don't think we'll see the WB expand ready by that point where the trickle-down effect is insane to think about and really will benefit more than anything. It'll benefit the best teams in the WNBA rather than the worst. Yeah, and the financials of that are obviously <clears throat> like the most important aspect in terms of looking at that projection where the W is at in its capacity to hold this talent. But the thing is that's worth noting, if we if we think about recent draft classes, if we think about, you know, people thought twenty <clears throat> sorry, people thought twenty twenty was going to be deep and ended up not being deep at all. Twenty twenty one is easily the worst draft in modern WNBA history. This year's class uh, the 2023 class is essentially missing your middle tier of assuming Boston declares and we don't have any more surprises in terms of players returning versus declaring where you're essentially missing the middle tier of prospects, the the back end of the lottery and the middle of the first round where we have some nice depth pieces and we have a Leah Boston and everything in between comes with enormous question marks really. And you're drafting higher than you want. But in contrast to all of those classes, the natural seniors graduating in 2024 and 2025 for those draft classes have already shaped up, again, without players using their fifth year to join them, have already been shaping up to be a couple of the best draft classes, the best first rounds in WNBA history. We knew this a couple of years ago when we looked at Caitlin Clark and Paige Beckers uh, splitting the freshman of the year vote uh, for the USBWA the USBWA award, you're looking at a draft where the back end of the first round includes like Sarah Andrews, Angel Reese, Celeste Taylor at this point. Celeste Taylor being someone coming from the 2023 class using her fifth year. And so pushing down someone like Haley Van Lith or Deja Kelly, both stars in their own right. On the other hand, let's say that players from the 2024 class can look at that and then either because of the money or because of how it affects their draft stock, they, de- they defer to 2025. At this point, the 2025 class includes, I've counted recently, it includes eight players who would be guaranteed lottery picks if they were able to enter the draft right now. Players who would pretty easily go number four in in this class. We're talking about classes with really high-level talent who are going to get extraordinarily bottlenecked by the downstream effect of this deferral. You mentioned... Uh, the fever and how they'll get screwed in this sense if this if this is what ends up happening. It certainly is what it looks like. But they're not the only team. When we look at teams like Seattle, who are probably begging on a very quick um, on a very quick rebuild period here to compete again with Jewel Lloyd on her current or on her next contract, they're a team who will not materially gain from tanking for only one or two years because the player that they could get at the end of the lottery is going to be all marginally better than the player they would have got in the middle of the first round if they had just tried to compete as much as a kind of aimless team like Chicago or Connecticut. Chicago is another team who kind of loses out on this because in their Marina Mabry trade, they were kind of banking on those draft picks not necessarily being the most valuable pieces in the world. But suddenly with the depth of the 2024 and 2025 class, not only did they trade the potential of getting someone like Caitlin Clark in those picks. They have almost certainly traded multiple players who will be at least as good as Marina Mabry is right now when they enter their primes. And I think that's the point to make is that when these classes, the reason why we can maybe start to call these super drafts is that 
you are going to get like right now, if you asked a WNBA GM, what pick do you find to be more valuable? The hypothetical eighth pick in the 2024 draft eighth or the fourth pick in 2023. I suspect a lot of them would say that eighth pick next year is going to give you a better shot at a high quality player. And again, I can, what I'm I can tell you for certain that many of them think that. And what I would even go to wonder if you're a team that expects to be a title contender this year, like the Las Vegas aces and the New York Liberty, if you still have your first round picks, all of a sudden a pick that's at the back of the first round next year might still be a great place to add depth. Whereas we've seen, you know, last year, for example, the aces cut the player, they took eighth overall. And it isn't always a guarantee that you're going to get somebody that really helps you. You can look at, you know, who still even contributed to their team from 2021 to see what the fear could be about this 2023 class. But, you know, there's a benefit to the specific people if you are thinking about it and you're on the fringe of being a first or second round talent in 2023, all of a sudden, if a lot of other people have left, your name just floats higher and higher. And for you as an individual, as long as you can stay on a roster, you are going to have a better shot. But it certainly especially given that this is the offseason that we've seen two years of future picks be allowed to be traded. And it happens to coincide with two years where the draft classes are starting to shape up to be thicker with quality talent than ever before. It is a bananas kind of trickle down butterfly effect off of the NCAA and WNBA kind of acquiescing to the COVID year eligibility change that I don't know if anybody could have possibly seen this coming. So folks, that is about as good of a definition of these WNBA super drafts as you probably have heard so far. And it's that twofold, which both Alex and M described, which is not only is this multiple classes, that's what makes it a super draft, but also The talent is stacked. I could tell you all um, listening that years ago, we've been talking about this group of players, this Caitlin Clark, Cameron Brink, Paige Beckers, even Olivia Miles, AZ Fudd. We've been talking about that group of players for a very long time because from the start, from their first college season, we sort of knew that their ceilings were so high and that they have pro skills and skills that are transferable at the next level. I think the one piece that I want to hit on before we, we transition further is just, I don't think obviously the level of talent, that's a huge thing, but I think this is also could be a super draft because of just who these players are as people and how they have so many more eyeballs on them than so many of the other lottery picks of the most recent years. So the fact that you could have Beckers, Clark, Brink, Angel Reese, I mean, these are people that have such a social capital could be entering the WNBA at the same time. Um, I think that's pretty significant. And I think the question I want to ask you guys is, 
our good friend and mentor, Howard Megdahl, wrote a fascinating column this week at The Nine. Um, if you haven't read this, please do. And he basically was talking about this idea of the fact that women's basketball doesn't need saving and that it's not a monolith. And here we have people talking about the sport via Caitlin Clark's brilliance during this tournament. Um, they're thinking about a lot of media people are thinking about this just along, you know, one storyline, one person. And so Howard's kicker was quite brilliant where he said, you know, there's there's a solution to thinking about the sport as a monolith, you know, that there's something we can do to break this trend. And what you do is you continue to cover these players and these people at the next level. You don't just leave when they get drafted into the WNBA draft. So my question for both of you is how do we know, or, or I guess speculating, will it be different this time? when we could potentially have a draft that consists of Clark, Beckers, Reese, Brink. Like, these are huge, huge names that have a lot of social capital. Well, this is the same sort of idea as the issue with the NIL, is players stay in school because they can make more money off of NIL than the W is willing to pay them as rookies. At the same token, your local newspaper in your college town is going to cover you a heck of a lot more than most uh, papers are in most of the places where the W is locating its teams. There is not a structure that exists in several of the cities for the WNBA to have the level of coverage necessarily that even men's teams have in similar areas. But I think the thing is, when you look at loading up these drafts with this amount of talent, is... The talent itself is not necessarily going to increase the number of eyeballs in the W because that requires a certain level of marketing and a certain level of um, and a certain level of ability by the W to actually have the capacity for these players and be able to play them and be able to give them that amount of spread. And to, to give them that amount of spread, in theory, you would want a new TV deal, which guarantees you more national television, which is easier if you have more teams and more roster spots. So you're going to have players who are getting cut despite being despite being big, like known social media stars. I, I shouldn't say social media stars. Good college basketball players, also known in social media. Easy examples are Andrew Reese and Haley Van Lith, two players with not exactly WNBA caliber skills at the moment. And so when you look at saying, does the WNBA benefit from this amount of talent? I think the question that has to be asked as a follow-up is, does the WNBA have the capacity to star this amount of talent and, and more to the point like part of the calculation would be you know caitlin clark iowa native iowa resident iowa high school star iowa college star at the university she probably is at her peak of nil value in state by staying at iowa that's the whole consideration she'll have to make at this yeah, point her employer right now is not iowa alex who's her employer well, she probably makes, well, employer, it, she definitely makes more money from Hy-Vee, the major exactly. grocery chain in Iowa, than she does by literally wearing the University of Iowa's clothes on the basketball court. But that, you know, to some extent, there are players who can do around this. So like Haley Jones at Stanford, there's not necessarily a great local 
amount of NIL money that Stanford players capitalize on, but Haley has done a really good job of getting national deals. She does stuff with SoFi. I've talked with her. She has a big Nike deal. She's got a Beats deal. Those are things that will carry on with her into her pro career that aren't necessarily as valuable where you say Stanford across your chest, that's when the money's there. For Caitlin Hyvie, she's probably at her peak value to Hyvie when she's wearing Iowa. Now, maybe that continues into her pro career. It also doesn't, for her sake, help that the closest WNBA team to Iowa City is at least a five-hour drive to Chicago. So that's the balance here. If you're Paige Beckers, you probably do have an insanely high value because you are where you are a UConn player and you are currently identified by a major brand at the college level. And those major individual brands are bigger than X WNBA team fill it in. Maybe that changes with the way that Las Vegas and New York has gone. Maybe it changes with an expansion, but it's one of these things where, you know, the WNBA has this issue where the league itself is kind of counterbalanced in terms of its priorities than what the teams have. For the teams, we don't care if you have a marketing presence. We don't care if you have a big following. We don't care. We need to win basketball games. That is the team's goal. So a player, like you mentioned like Haley Van Lith, who is maybe a little bit on the fringier side as a WNBA prospect, I'm sure the league would love to have her in the league for her clout, for her brand, for all of that. But none of that matters if you can't stay on the floor. And for a team, that's the evaluation that matters to them. The WNBA can't just have like a marketing team of here are 12 you know, most followed players. It doesn't matter what their quality is. And that's kind of the professional balance, if you will, that is always going to be kind of a dichotomy that exists. Alex, it's so funny that you bring that up because you're describing a situation that I've paid very close attention to. And this is about a player who I don't think even got a stint with NIL. And you might know who I'm talking about, um, or maybe you don't, I don't know. But you're basically describing the situation of Dee Dee Richards, someone who is a fan favorite wherever she goes. I mean, let me tell you, she stepped on the floor once. Like she just stepped on the floor to get on it. And all of Barclays was cheering her name because they knew about her hairstyles. They knew about her injury and how difficult that was and, and the journey to come back. And you couple that with the fact that she was on a WNBA league marketing deal. She was on the Liberty's team marketing deal. But then when you look at her stats and you look at her on-court performance, and, and I can tell you this is something that it's it makes Dee Dee feel uncomfortable, which as it should. She hasn't really played that much in the first two years of her career because she's been injured for the majority of the first two years of it. I mean, when you're thinking about people of players that have huge followings, but maybe aren't the most skilled. I mean, I think of Taya Cooper, who it was so funny. She, or I don't know if it's funny, but it was just interesting. She was the most followed when she was in the league. She was the most followed WNBA player. Um, but in terms of her, her skill and her, I guess, ability to win at the professional level, that wasn't quite there. And I think the WNBA itself gets into this conundrum because 
it's been, it hasn't had a real, well, how do I put this? It's marketing direction has not really been shaped in recent years. And so there's also the other point to this is that, and M, you can take this from here, but this is where having rules in place that basically restrict your league to like 135 active players, not even the full 144 and keeping the league at 12 can be restrictive because if you were at, Hey, we can have 15 players on a roster even if these players are not necessarily here helping us right now, we can have a few spots that are more development focused. All sorts of things open up there. If you had more teams, all sorts of extra players can fill those extra roster spots and take you from there. And here's the real thing for me with that, or, or the big thing for me with that question is going off of that, that would be an, not only an incredible boon to the players in these upcoming drafts, but it would also be... A, just a huge benefit to the league in terms of its capacity to actually feel the best 150 or so whatever players in the world, as opposed to what it has now, which is the, you know, maybe 120 or so best American players uh, in the world and the whole, whole other can of worms that we will not get into because our Isabel Rodriguez covers it so well in terms of the WNBA's apathy towards actually fielding the best players in the world. But the thing is for me, the current freshman crop in the league that is we're projecting way out for the 2026 draft. It would we knew ahead of time we had some really great freshmen in in the in the in the NCAA this year. We knew ahead of time this is going to be a really really good really deep recruiting class. We know that the incoming class the 2027s aren't just it just isn't so much that good of a recruiting class. But the thing is, in looking at these drafts, the issue with the fifth year only lasts for these. 2024, 2025 drafts. Those are the ones that can stock up for, you know, as deep as the 2026 draft naturally is going to be. So if you're the WNBA who is so resistant to change and so apathetic to the concept of actually uh, solidifying its base and improving its top line in ways that would not only confer current benefits, but confer benefits down the line, are you going to make the change that is going to enable the league to actually accommodate what is coming up for the pipeline here? Or are you willing to sit for on your hands for two years and because the problem is only going to last two more years and then you hit 2026 and you're like, oh, well, there's no problem anymore. We have nothing to need to address. Which is also, if I'm not mistaken, when a potential CBA opt-out would expire, which is also when a television deal comes up. And I'm sure, Jackie, you want to get more into that soon. Yes, I'd like to hold that thought because we have to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about how what you just mentioned, Alex, some of those key dates factors into maybe some ways as to how to solve some of this, because there are a lot of different factors at bay. All right, and we are back. Um, so we've throughout this past half hour plus, we've really identified some of the issues. I mean, the big picture issues that the WNBA currently faces in talking about these super drafts, which is fascinating. And so what we've brought up is we've brought up pay or lack thereof. We've brought up the fact that there is a I guess, a, a delay when it comes to 
team expansion, but also there is a resistance currently to roster expansion, which financially could be a step taken before team expansion. It's really interesting because Kathy Engelbert spoke pretty, I guess, openly saying that, oh no, you know, we don't As openly want- as Kathy Engelbert is, can possibly speak. Yeah, oh, that, that's a relative term. Yes, thank you, Em. Um, she basically was saying, well, the players, they didn't, they didn't talk about roster expansion when we, you know, sat at the table to construct the 2020 CBA. Obviously, to open the show, I discussed the fact that, or we all discussed the fact that so much has changed in three years since that new CBA was ratified. And, and so I think the question I want to pose to both of you, and I know there's a lot to unpack here, is how, I guess, hypothetically, could the WNBA use, so the WNBA, the league, and its players use some of these dates to its advantage? And when I'm talking about the dates, I'm talking about the two dates that you just brought up, Alex, which are the CBA opt-out date, which I have here. It is November 1st, 2024, is when the players' union can decide to opt out of the current CBA. And then I think what's worth remembering also when it comes to the CBA is what they're deciding on on November 1st, 2024, is to terminate the current CBA on October 31st, 2025. So that's basically... Basically, at that point, you have to decide on 11-1-24. Do we want one more year of this current CBA or are we good with it for another three? And that would mean you would wait until its original expiration date in 2020, after the 2027 season. And I, I look at it, and I certainly think that's a leverage point that might lead to discussion between the league and the players. But if the league felt like there was an issue with the current CBA, they're more like both sides are more than happy to make discussions in the middle. I think the league has found the current situation to be quite advantageous. This is my opinion, I want to say. But I, I would imagine that the league doesn't see the roster issue as as big of an issue as it appears from the outside, if only because it does get you close. Look, there was a lot of players who were in this current WNBA free agent class who made a very big deal out of a lot of the issues that they had with the league. And by the end of the day, for the most part, almost all of them stayed in the WNBA. And many of them even took less money to stay in the WNBA and join the teams that they've joined. Uh, Brianna Stewart being the biggest name in all of that. Courtney Vandersloot was another one. There are players who had the opportunity, if they wanted to really put the WNBA in a position where they could have stayed away from the league to kind of make that point, and they did not. So if I'm the WNBA and I'm the league, everything's a negotiation, right? I'm not going to necessarily break the CBA on my own volition in the middle of it, if I don't have to, maybe they feel like there might be a situation that they have to, but I certainly think, and they're going to run into issues where the product is worse because of the rules being the certain way they are right now. And that might be the one thing that gets them to think about doing that, or at least to negotiate it at the opt-out date. I do question if that is necessarily where that 
is the I, I do question if that is necessarily the end of that chain of logic because of what we talked about with the super drafts, not necessarily triggering a rule change, but actually but actually artificially creating the solution to that problem you just mentioned without any intervention on the league side. So when we think about, the, uh, as our Isabella, as I previously mentioned, has written with prioritization specifically screwing over the middle class, and as you just mentioned, you know the upper class, the upper echelon of the WNBA in terms of pay, you know, they made a deal about prioritization, but they didn't actually really do anything about it. The upper echelon here is not the ones that get screwed by prioritization, and the upper echelon in any sport is not the one are not the ones who get screwed by a sudden influx of younger talent and by CBA renegotiation. That is, without fail, the middle class of that league. And what we can see here now is every year we have a few more spots in the WNBA where teams are paying great vets more money because that's just how salaries inflate over time in a league with a capped max salary. And so they have more spots that they need to give to less and less paid uh, minimums. So you see spots that, you know, we don't see a lot of spots that were like mid-tier veterans turning into minimums, but we see a lot of uh, veteran minimum salaries turning into zero to two-year minimum salaries. And that saves you a, a, a pretty penny in terms of being able to offer someone another $10,000 on their salary. So what you will suddenly have here is a sudden influx of players who are going to make the team they got drafted by, but they're suddenly available for very cheap and actually a useful upside play as a bench piece. And now you can replace your $90,000 backup point guard with you know a $60,000, $65,000 rookie point guard who actually has some measured talent well above their artificial salary cap. And even if you get that player in the draft, by the way, Getting them with the 11th pick in the first round, if even if you thought they were good enough to be in a non-super draft year, a mm-hmm. lottery level pick, getting somebody who was a mid-first round pick type player in the middle of the second round makes them significantly cheaper. And you have, you know, the one thing about the players that you can get with a draft pick is there's cost guarantees with their contract as they are that I would imagine some WNBA teams would say, we could hope that this player gets cut if they're drafted by somebody else, but we just want to draft them and take mm-hmm. them at the cheaper number that they're already at relative to what they could be if they were a true, you know, free agent pickup. But those are still and in terms cheap. of those gar- there's it's still cheap. Say, and in terms of those yeah. guarantees, in terms of those guarantees, continuing on with the theme of screwing the middle class, do you know who was not affected by prioritization? Oh, I know. Oh, it's the players on the zero to two level. In that regard, yeah, it's players on the rookie contracts. Yes, so you can not only draft these players, but you don't have to. You don't have to give two craps about whether or not they will actually be suspended by the league if they don't come over in time, because you have them and they will be active on their contract regardless of when they show up. And so, what's really interesting about this is, Alex, you mentioned something fascinating that I want to touch on before we talk about the other really important date. And then, of course, we will sign off soon and let y'all enjoy Final Four Day. But something you mentioned, Alex, was this idea of the product on the floor. And so I think that is an issue that is very much so connected to roster size. And so, and this idea of how the current structure, you cannot fit some of these really talented young players. You basically have to choose between 
winning and developing. And you can't do both. That That's what the current system allows for. Um, you could argue that the Dallas Wings, one of the things that they've been quite successful at is they have valued um, taking on younger players. I mean, we don't have to get into the reason for that, but the concept, I think, is one that other general managers and executives that maybe have been in this league for a long time and that are maybe more of the old school brand of how things are done are a little bit more resistant to that. But what I'm trying to explain here is, okay, you draft a player like Angel Reese and Haley Van Lith. And this is a team that already has a ton of talent. And what happens is, you don't have enough room, so then Haley Van Lith or Angel Reese is unfortunately waived. Okay, well then what happens five days later, or actually maybe a week later, one of your stars gets injured and is out for a month and a half. Oh God, what do you do? You, you need someone to play. Oh, they could have used you know that, that rookie that you drafted. But wait, oh no, you had to waive that person. So what I'm trying to describe here is the fact that WNBA teams have to pick players, sometimes off the street, who might not know the team system is a problem. And so when you were talking about the product, that is immediately what I thought of. It's that, is the league going to wake up and realize that this is a big problem. Well, this is an issue we've had already. I mean, do you, I mean certainly you and I remember you're the Liberty Beat. I'm the I'm the Storm Beat. You remember what happened when New York went to Seattle last year, and they were missing a whole bunch of players, and they could not, you know, pick up the requisite uh, sort of hardship situation because you're not in New York. You're in Seattle. You have to pick someone up off the street in Seattle to play for you, or at least someone who could get to Seattle. And they got smoked. That series was horrendous. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. You almost want, you know, to borrow a term from the National Hockey League, you would almost love for there to be, like, a stash of emergency backup goalies, but, like, emergency backup (laughs) games in every WNBA city just, like, working out in the city. And maybe that's a thing the league could do. Can we set up to have a couple of players literally, like, be ready in the event that a team, you know, has a flu bug go through or has something go through on the day of a game where they're all of a sudden only have seven healthy players and we want them to have a minimum eight. Well, here's a player that we at the league have been paying to train, you know, at whatever rate you do. And it's almost, you know, to an extent like an NFL practice squad level, or yeah, like if you truly had it as like an emergency backup goalie, this player can go plug in. And if you just need a warm body to take eight minutes of a game, that player can do it. I still think though, there's a lot of issues that the league could solve and there's a lot of things that would theoretically make the league better, but the incentive for the league to do so just doesn't exist in the current rule structure as it is, unless the league feels that the product is suffering. And I don't think the league feels that to the extent that maybe some of us do just in terms of the quality that they could be putting forth. But we, a few players we haven't mentioned for the players who did say that they would think about not coming and it didn't, you are missing a ton of your players who are non-American for this season. 
Chicago had both Emma Miesemann and Julie Alamond last year, and it doesn't seem like either is going to play in the WNBA this season, not necessarily because of the fact that they don't want to. They obviously have commitments in Europe with Eurobasket and their own European professional leagues, but it's because of the rules that would literally financially penalize them to an extent that makes it basically worthless for them to even try to play in the WNBA at any point in time. So that's the point that I would look at where if you're fine to an extent with the prioritization rule as a veteran, why do I even bother to come is a very real thing. And I think we're now at the point for the W where if you want to be the best league in the world, your rules do need to be moldable just enough to figure out, okay, can we make sure we have certain roster spots? Can we make sure we do certain things? And even if you are going to try to muscle out the other professional leagues throughout the world, which it does seem like is part of the goal of prioritization, you have to at least get to that new TV deal, which expires after 2025, that will then raise the salaries so high enough all across the board if it comes through with the TV deal to the extent that it could, that it basically will make it be that, okay, yeah, we are paying at or above what you can make in any league in the world. This is the league where you are going to get the best exposure. The most money is always still the most important thing. No matter what else you have, the most money will matter. And for players who aren't American and don't have the home tie that a lot of American players do, that will be the difference-making element. I also think it depends on the franchise that's involved. I do believe, and you guys can fact check me if I'm wrong, but Julie Alamon does not apply to prioritization. Um, she has played two years in the WNBA. You apply to prioritization after your third year of service. That is the situation that Maureen Johannes currently is in. She has played in two WNBA seasons. So I think with Chicago, I think Emma Mieseman is an excellent example. Um, but I think with Chicago and with Alamond, there are other things at play. Um, you can also mention Gabby Williams in Seattle, who's currently yep. a restricted free agent, who I don't believe has signed anywhere as of this time and actually now is just an unrestricted free agent, M, if I'm not mistaken, given the timeline of this. But um, like uh, that, the last part is something to, of, of which I am unfamiliar with the actions of the CBA, I, although I don't think so. So I think the, the final thing I want to hit on before we sign off is, and Alex, you brought this up, which was the TV, the ESPN TV deal expires in October of 2025. So after the WNBA's 2025 season. And so there's a lot of information we don't know. Um, I think many of us have posed this question, can the WNBA wait that long? My immediate answer to it is no. No, it cannot. And so I guess what I want to know is these two dates, October of 2025, November 1 of 2024, what potentially could be the order of operations here when it comes to renegotiating a TV deal, um, trying to alter some of these rules, if that means creating a soft salary cap, Expansion even, which we didn't talk a ton about, but it's obviously part of the discussion. What is a potential order of operation situation that you could see here? 
Who wants to take it first? I know it's a tough one. Yeah, this could I mean, I think we talked quite a bit about expansion and the issues that the WNBA brings up if they don't want to expand. You know, yes. Alex mentioned the full-fledged benefits of expanding your roster to 15, which, again, it's if you're expanding the size of the season to 40 games, it is, it is frankly just ridiculous to not have a roster that is larger than 12, even as you know, most teams don't have a roster of 12. Expanding by multiple teams as well will, would add a couple dozen spots, even without increasing roster size, but increasing roster size adds more spots than increasing by a couple teams does. Beyond that, just make the league attractive to players so that they actually want to play in it. Because players don't care about the four marketing deals you hand out every every uh, winter. Players don't care about how nice the two hoodies they get a year are. Players care about not having to to stuff their six foot two bodies into economy class uh, twice a week every week. Players care about being able to actually get paid what is a living wage uh, in a lot of these cities. Sixty thousand, which is what the um, uh, minimum, the, the, the lower minimum salary was last year, 60000 in Los Angeles or in New York, when you have to keep up with the schedule that the WNBA demands and you have to keep up with what your, the how you have to maintain your body under that schedule is ridiculous. Players don't want to do that, and I wouldn't either. Yeah, I, it, it's kind of one of those things where you can make up a lot of things that end up mattering, but like to bear to like literally pare this down to four words, it's the money, stupid. Like that's all it comes down to for the players. If you pay them enough money, everything else will be more tolerable if they're making an amount where they don't have to spend half of their time in a faraway European country for those that are American based. Or if you're coming to America, if you're paying them enough to play in this league to leave home for as long as you do, that will make the biggest difference on top of that. Yeah. I think part of this issue as to why we don't just see the WNBA do this, that is an important thing, is that there's clearly dissension in the ownership rank. The 12 owners for which Kathy Engelberg works for very clearly do not agree on a lot of these topics themselves. I mean, and this our own when we got to the issue with the jet and the private flying, which came around thanks to our Howard Mendel's reporting at the, uh, at the, at the end of last season. And this is enough of a uh, of an issue that it deserves its own episode, and we can't get into it here. Yeah. But you can't accomplish anything in the WNBA as it is when you have by by a hand count about a quarter of the league who are actively opposed to it costing them any more money out of pocket than it currently does. We can also we can also reference money. we can also reference Howard's reporting to the fact that one team in the WNBA literally was paying its players more money under the table. They are trying to play their players more money to come play for them than they legally are allowed under the CBA, as Howard's reporting says. With and Los the team that you mentioned in the Las Vegas Aces is known across the league as one of those teams that is a part of the upper tier. You know, it's the newer ownership group that wants to invest. That is like, we're all in. And it's really interesting because... You've seen some front office shufflings that have gone on this past offseason. Um, you've seen a new owner uh, in Matt Abisha come to Phoenix. We don't really know yet what his 
philosophy is when it comes to investment. And then you've had an addition in Chicago with Nadia Rawlinson, who technically I don't believe has been confirmed um, by the Board of Governors. It's a bit of a confusing thing. But and, and then you have Greg Bibb in, in Dallas. There, there are a lot of questions there. When he was asked about charter flights, he very much so did not want to answer a question about them. So, yeah, yeah. I think what we've seen more is that that is maybe even more than how the league and the players are going to interact in these next two seasons ahead of, especially the big date being November 1, 2024. It's how the league's 12 ownership groups interact with each other and where they are. And obviously we've even seen uh, in Atlanta that there are some, Atlanta's ownership group is very vocal on social media and they seem to be willing to kind of let it be known that they would be in the camp of, well, let us do whatever financially we want to do it. We want to do all of this. It's the rules that are restricting us. So if those rules are still in place, it means that there is not enough votes to get those rules done away with, even if there are groups that want to. So yeah, Jackie, we could, we, and especially Em and I, we could do that for another three hours here, but we probably shouldn't. Yes, yes. We want to thank you all for making Locked on Women's Basketball your first listen every day. And I want to give a huge thank you and a huge shout out to Alex Simon. You can find him on Twitter at Alex Simon Sports. He is with the Bay Area News Group and he he works and has a nice time with us as well here at Locked on Women's Basketball. And I want to thank the wonderful and incomparable M Adler. You can find her at M underscore Adler on Twitter as well. She does Seattle storm coverage she does she runs a lot of our WNBA draft scouting um and join us tomorrow where m and hunter cruz will be back with our saturday WNBA draft themed show enjoy the final four everyone and also make your second listen game to game nba yes it is the little brother league of the wnba every moment every top performance every result locked on game to game covers every game from across the nba yes that little brother league with local analysis that only locked on can deliver follow game to game it's available on the odyssey app youtube and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jackie Powell. It was wonderful to be back on Locked on Women's Basketball. Enjoy Final Four weekend, and see you soon. Welcome to the For the win! You are Locked on Women's Basketball. Your daily podcast on women's basketball.